and welcome to episode 63 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Eloise Ross. And I'm Anders Furs. And in this month's look at what's happening on Melbourne cinema screens, we're previewing some of the highlights from the program of the Melbourne International Film Festival, aka MIF, aka the most wonderful time of the year, including a close look at the documentary One Child Nation. We'll also open up the Cultural Capital Film Diary. But first, it's screened at Cannes, it won awards at the Yerevan Film Festival, now it's at MIF. It's Kantamir Bagalov's Beanpole. <laughs> 20-something Russian filmmaker Kantamir Balagov returns with his second feature, Beanpole, which arrives at Myth after winning awards and acclaim at the Cannes Film Festival. The film is set in Leningrad in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. We are first introduced to Ia, Victoria Mironchnichenko, who is referred to as Beanpole due to her height. She's a nurse tending to returned soldiers. She rarely speaks, although her young child Pashka is the life of the ward. She's also prone to PTSD-driven fits, where she struggles to breathe and freezes up. Early in the film, one of these fits leads to tragic results. Enter Masha, Vasilisa Perilegina, a woman who has returned from war and back into Ia's life. The pair are best friends. Mostly following the relationship between these two women and the hospital in which they work, director Balagov slowly begins to weave a portrait of an utterly shell-shocked country. This is a hospital, a city, a nation, whose residents seem barely able to consciously come to terms with what has been done to them, and what they have done to others. Eloise, what did you make of Beanpole? It took me a really long time to work out my feelings about Beanpole. I was extraordinarily not in the mood to watch a depressing movie about the aftermath of World War II, and it kind of didn't really do itself any favours in that regard because it's very bleak um, and very slow and just so almost... over the top in its seriousness, I would say, and that it was really pushing me away. And I was um, quite consciously not having a nice time watching it. And sort of against my best judgment, it did actually win me over. All of those things that I was resisting about it kind of turned, they just worked for so long that they turned, you know, my opinion around and by maybe about halfway through uh it's a two hours 20 minute runtime so pretty long and still possibly too long I would say but it had really really gotten me I was struck by its beauty like there's a lot of shots that are kind of there take place in darkness but rather than having that quite common um digital like beigeness where a scene that's set at night will just kind of look really murky and grey. Um, it was rich and warm and um, lit up by the glow of a match or a light or something something very small. And so that that was really beautiful and very engaging. And I kind of couldn't look away from quite a lot of the moments. So it did take a long time. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I did get very into it. Mm, interesting because I would say that my reaction was exactly the same. Exactly the same. I did resist it for a while, but then I succumbed. And it really has had an outsized effect, I think. It really has stayed with me, particularly a few moments. And I think this is 
what he's very good at um, in the film is it is quiet, it's slow. You see these scenes, I guess, slowly. It's almost like the director's winding, I don't know, like a cuckoo clock, or winding something up, and then he lets it go in these, like, quite extraordinary sort of moments of activity or moments where there's dramatic tension or even just on the level of the performances. Um, and these sort of frenzied little little moments that really have an outsized impact due to the very muted context within which they're sitting. Um, Andy, I'd be curious to know what you made of the film. Yeah, I'm actually not that far off both of you. I really, really loved the performances of Mira Shachenko yes. and Pera Legina. I think they were both phenomenal. I could watch them all day. Um, so Swintonian. I don't think anyone's ever used that word before, but Tilda Swinton, she's like a lot like Tilda Swinton. The beanpole. Beanpole herself, mm. yeah. Yeah, yeah. she reminded me quite a bit of Gwendolyn Christie or mm. Tilda Swinton. Uh, yeah, I wrote, those colours stood out to me as well, but I did feel it was almost on the nose, the use of how many more warm greens and reds and blues can it we get a in little. this screen. The and green was, I just, I mean, it was very, oh, it was a little overdone, but the greens were so magnificent. Gorgeous, yeah, really beautiful to look at, which mm. was just as well because some of these scenes really could have used some snipping. Mm. I mean, were, he does seem to be a big fan of long takes. I mean, the director's, what, 27, I think? This is his second feature? Yeah, yep, yep. So obviously, like, bags of talent and some really interesting points of view. I did think that it was quite, I mean, there are several films that do this and they do it either in this way where you've got lots of long takes and something's very slow or they do it in this very, you know, a frenetic kind of editing style and it's where the, the mood of the... Um, um, main character or the main kind of two characters in this regard or the entire city slash continent of Europe um, uh, is reflected by the filmmaking style, mm. right? Where uh, the, hun- the country is kind of stunned and it's just in this place, like this permanent state of stasis mm. and of, um, you know, kind of dull comprehension of everything. Yeah. And by yeah. having these takes that are just a little too long and kind of slightly dull mm. it really you know i you know i get i got a bit sick of it but it very well kind of communicates that yeah. feeling yeah right? but it, this is the country that won the war mm. i mean they just you know this is what victory looks like is this <laughs> relentless yeah, like exactly because what one thing that i was also thinking of given that it's almost entirely confined to a hospital and it very much felt to me like a set like if i felt quite claustrophobic we didn't get mm. we didn't leave it very often it reminded me of that um the cooler cooler shove effect that editing mm. technique that mm-hmm. was probably, you know was became like a I think every cinema student learns it in the first couple of weeks. Where for those they who sure don't do know Hitchcock, it, right? Yeah, yeah, he talks about it. Um, so basically, it's this <laughs> thing where because if the I <laughs> confess my ignorance, <laughs> so educate me. Left Kulshov was this uh, th- person who put together this short video of the film of like um, this famous actor's face and then different objects. So I think the first one was like a bowl of soup. The second one was like a beautiful woman and then there was a, a baby or... A it was just kind of experimenting with audiences that, that by manipulating images and not necessarily aligning oh, images yeah. that were adjacent to one another, that an audience could be manipulated to believe one thing or another. Yeah. Um, so the power was in the, you know... The, in the edit. In the edit. edit. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. here yeah. what yeah. we get, what this why this reminded me of it is because there was no edit, but people would be, receive devastating news and their faces would not change. But I would be feeling differently for them they would having you know be doing their acting thing where it's happening internally, but their faces were like before and after. It was like exactly the same, but they've just been told this horrific news, like some, some stuff that in any other film you probably would see people losing their minds over. Mm. But because they're just so inured now to dev- to tragedy that so many millions of people was froze to death, 
the siege of Leningrad just finished, all this sort of stuff that they're just going, okay, so this is also something I've got to deal with. And, you know, and like. Yeah, like there weren't that, that particularly that first piece of news, right? That, that Masha hears. Well, that, yeah. yeah. You think, why? What did. Is that really what happened? And then, but. You know, she's just like, oh, well, why wouldn't that happen? I mean, that's probably that's what's going through her mind. Yeah, and then there's also right? uh, there's a guy, Stefan, I think, who mm. became uh, paralysed from the mm. neck down. Yep. And so he's got to deal with, you know, life like this. And also, also he's got a family who have not done well, as I don't think anyone did well in this situation. But anyway, the way he takes this as well, just made me think how... I, I totally believe that this is this is like what would actually happen, but at the same time, it's just so beyond like horrific and it's just so bleak. <laughs> it is very bleak, um, mm. and yeah, you're you're exactly right. There's nothing sort of histrionic in this film at all. I loved on on the topic of this. I really loved the ending, which obviously we can't mm. go into too much detail, but um, I just thought it was perfectly aligned with that muted sensibility i just yeah it was great it was yeah. fantastic there was a little maybe you could kind of see in that like you know pushing that idea of like maybe this is going to turn out to be just a typical melodrama and it's like is the director is he just pulling our leg here like or, or is this an organic part of his script and the way that he kind of wanted to do it or is he just saying got ya i don't know i couldn't uh, mm, i couldn't yeah. really tell there's no sense of humor in the rest of it so <laughs> yeah um, yeah it is fascinating the way that life and death is treated yeah i mean yeah really yeah i do just in general in terms of like these post war dramas i um occasionally a little over this um you know the f- the very f- formal approach of just observing people's devastation mm-hmm. um, in this kind of regard and that sometimes the more active cinematic approach is more engaging. Yeah. But it did work to its favour here. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting also because we never see the image of Stalin, we never see these sorts of like the larger theatre of war. It's mm. just kept very tight. It is very yeah, insular in the way that it is very tightly focused on only a few characters. Yeah, and that's also I think, you know, works mm. emotionally as well. I think that we're yeah. kind of forced yeah, it's to not, keep yeah. staying with these two women through the whole Yeah, it's thing. not like, you know, look what Leningrad is like now in yeah, general. Yeah. You know, look at like all of the... Pan out. Yeah, the yeah. yeah. Exactly. The streets, um, you exactly. know, I mean, that's that's been done before, right? But the story of these two women has not. And I loved the actress who played Masha. I can't mm. remember which one she was. Vasilisa Perilagina. Peri yeah, first, she was first just... First ever appearance in a wow. film. Wow, she was just extraordinary, I thought. Mm. Yeah, that um, face. Mm, and the red hair. Mm. Anyway. Yeah. Um, and the possibly the most joyless sex I've ever seen, I think. Oh, that sex scene was, <coughs> it was kind just, of horrific it was, in a way, wasn't it? it was, yeah. yeah, there were a few moments where I thought I need to turn this off um mm. and that was one of them mm. yeah but i did not <laughs> so and that is w- what makes this a perfect film festival film i think because Good point. you're forced to sit through it and then come to um hopefully come to an appreciation the way that i did in my yeah i think in lesser in lesser hands this film could maybe encourage some walkouts but i don't yeah. think that this i don't think that anyone could possibly do do so yeah, true. There's a challenge for you. It is. It's if it's your fifth film of the day, you might be like, oh, <laughs> yeah. Geez. Well, but also, right. by it really ends up taking hold. I think 
this happened with all, all three of us. Have you seen, sorry, this is a bit of a tangent, but have you seen uh, Come and See? Yes. The bleakest war film of all time. Yeah, yeah. I, that, I, this, I watched this and I thought, oh, I kind of want to revisit that. Really? Uh, yeah, but it cool. is, it's a good few levels bleaker than this. Mm. Come and See. <laughs> yeah, this, uh, body yeah. count is a bit higher. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I totally recommend it. Um, yeah. Yeah, and in the like great. the the Nancy Myers corner of this particular uh, month's episode, how nice are those sweaters? So many nice knits. Oh, in this yeah, film. I can't remember whose <laughs> review it was, so excuse me if you wrote it. But I read a review of the film that at the end it was just kind of like, how nice to know that even in like war torn Leningrad there was still um, like a wide selection of really nice knitted jumpers. <laughs> yes, I was, thinking, I was thinking they're very clean. Mm. <laughs> Other things aren't, but they're very well maintained. Anyway. Trust you to um, focus on the nits, Andy. Classic Andy. Nancy, Nancy Myers. I left a message on her Instagram this week. Oh, did still you? waiting to hear back. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, Nancy. Um, no, I think I think I see it. I reckon see it. It's great. Beanpole is screening at the Forum on August 4 at 9pm and Sunday, August 18 at 4pm. Which brings us to this month's Cultural Capital Film Diary. The Indian Film Festival of Melbourne runs from August 8 to 17 and they've managed to pull some very special guests from India including the legendary actor Shah Rukh Khan, the singer and composer Amal Malik and the actor Arjun Kapoor. Featured films include the Kashmiri drama Widow of Silence about a woman trying to procure a death certificate for her vanished husband, the unconventional love story Care of Kachira Palem and the acclaimed opening night coming of age drama Bull Bull Can Sing. Screenings take place at Hoyt's Cinemas around Melbourne and you can find out more at iffm.com.au. The Music Film Festival brings together some of the best films about music at the Palace Westgarth from August 1st to 14th. Highlights include opening night film Oliver Stone's The Doors, The Final Cut, Ron Howard's The Beatles, Eight Days a Week, Anton Corbin's Control and the closing night movie The Chills, The Triumph and Tragedy of Martin Phillips. The Astor Theatre is dedicating August to MIF, including the Jeff Goldblum Marathon on Friday, August 9, a screening of Distant Voices Still Lives, and Peter Strickland's In Fabric, both on August 10, and a lot of screenings of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood from August 15. Yes. Yes. I'm keen. I can't wait to hear Anders' thoughts on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I can't wait to watch it. Tarantino, people say that I look like a cross between Tarantino and Vincent D'Onofrio. I'll take that. I'll take that. I was born in China in 1985, a time when China's population crisis was making headlines around the world. In an effort to protect its people from starvation, China has enacted a policy limiting families to just one child. I never thought much about what the policy meant for me or anyone until I learned that I was going to be a mom. None of my family questioned the policy or how it was implemented. Most people have probably heard of China's one-child policy, even if they don't know much detail about it. And this scenario is at the crux of Wang Nanfu and Zhang Jialing's documentary examination into some of the darker realities behind its utopian image. In 1979, two decades after PRC Premier Zhou Enlai urged for citizens to limit their childbirths, leader of the PRC Deng Xiaoping installed the one-child policy aimed to drastically curb China's population growth and maintain China's strength 
as a thriving country after the Cultural Revolution. The filmmakers of One Child Nation were born in China during this period. The policy ended in 2015 and Wang Nanfu begins her investigation from the point of her own family in a rural village, uncovering some astounding stories and attitudes about the policy that in some ways are insensitive to its wider implications. One Child Nation only scratches the surface of so many horrors and wounds and something much larger, a series perhaps, seems urgently necessary. One of the propagandistic terms recalled about the period was we are fighting a population war designed to mobilise poor civilians in a patriotic battle with themselves. Anders, what role does this film have in that war? I, what role does this film play in that war? Well, a very important one. As you said in your introduction, it's, you know, the one-child policy, something I'm aware of, didn't really understand what that meant in practice. And this really... um, shows what that meant and it I mean to often horrific ends and what I find particularly interesting is that the filmmaker herself uh, Nanfu Wang um, goes into her family's history her she interviews her parents and her grandparents who all had direct experience of the one child boss in I mean in the sense that she interviews a family member who openly discusses how they just left um, a girl, a baby girl, to basically at a market with $20 in, and, you know, away you go, and the girl died. Mm. I mean, it's um, extraordinary that um, all of these people sort of so openly talk about this. And you sort of get... This is why I really admire her style, because she asks very difficult questions and then gives her interviewees space to to answer them and then also to reflect on their meaning and you get the sense that it's not something that they've often done or at least certainly not so publicly. And so that is a really interesting... It's not just sort of a documentary survey overview of the one-child policy. It's... uh, You're directly looking at people grapple with their own roles in that process, I guess, and that's what makes it quite um, extraordinarily interesting and uh, quite moving as well. I would definitely agree with that. Um, at first, I wasn't quite sure that Nanfu Wang was the right person to tell this. I was like, "This is a huge subject. Why are you the the, the correct person to be able mm. to be, you know, sharing this story?" And then the, suddenly, you know, after a little while, you know, she's like, "So I talked to my mum, then I met, talked to the midwife, and then I talked to these people." And then it's just like within with, with like such efficiency, she makes the personal political, and just within her family, there's this number of stories, which is staggering when you think how many families are in China and how many similar exactly. families would have also have stories about you know abandoning infants by the sides of roads or in boxes in markets and all this sort of stuff, and just the amount of um, of horror, but also there's all these the way that she goes to Utah, she tries to find to track mm. down. You know, the story become it becomes a much more global one rather than just analyzing policy and what it was like to carry that out. So I think what was really really interesting about this and something that people who may be familiar with the one child policy haven't considered so much is the, what not only what it was like to be on the front line of this population war that you know, had been declared and what it was like to carry out these particular policies, but the way that everybody comes up with the similar answer where yeah. they're saying this you know it was we had no choice we had to do this this yeah, is it was policy. out of our control yeah it was that, so this get, kind of frees them from a responsibility but also that doesn't i mean that's this you really, know really interesting wh- dynamic what i'd never thought of before and i kind of you know knew a little bit about this and about that attitude of course where you know you're you're sticking up for your nation and you know anything for the country kind of 
you know, kind of rhetoric. But when one of, I think it's her mother or it's the midwife who, you know, the kind of very, very ferocious midwife who was in the village where she grew up um, says, you know, spouts out these things like we had to do it. Um, you know, it's a war and in all war there's death. So, of course, you know, we weren't surprised about it. I was, I was like, this is why Nazis had got in trouble afterwards because they just followed yeah. orders. Yeah, yeah, just following Whereas orders. here yeah. everyone's openly admitting to following orders, openly admitting to like leaving babies in ditches because you couldn't have them in your house. So you, you had to kill them mm. without any fear that like they're going to be followed up later yeah. for like committing murder. No, and, the people I mean, who get followed up are the people who try to save them. The ones yeah. who tell you, you got them out. You know, and that's, I mean, not to say that they necessarily should or should not get tried for murder, but it's a very interesting kind of yes. like, you know, discord between that history in Germany and this history here. I mean, there is that extraordinary moment. I think just looking at my notes, it is her mother who says that they, mm. in the dead of night, they, with a baby girl, they climbed a mountain and yep. went like through God knows what this journey was and to leave her at a market. It is, ex- it's quite, yeah, it's quite remarkable mm. just to have see that moment. But that mother as well said about um, the, you know, her husband that when he was growing up during, and presumably during, you know, all of these like horrible decades in China that, that finished with the, not finished, but, you know, that culminated with, the great leap forward. Yes. You know, like that people were starving essentially and that people yeah. had just – and she says he had to eat – he couldn't eat nothing but rice husks, which causes great constipation. So, like, mm. it's just as bad as maybe killing babies. I don't know. Yeah, but then the uniformity of answers makes me think this is all just party propaganda line that and people were sung songs, you know, all told, you know – you know, aphorisms like this is a population war or war on population. Yeah, um, and the film I know, but they were told, yeah. you know, but they were also told propaganda lies about the fact that, you know, if you were a farmer, you would have fruitful growth. Mm. Whereas in reality, they were eating rice husks. So, you know, they, they did see this discord between what was being told to them and what they were living. Yeah, but then this, what I find so interesting is that you can say, well, I couldn't have done anything, but also the emotional weight of that you know which is beautifully expressed when she meets a midwife who did 50,000 forced sterilizations mm. or whatever I think yeah watch, that's what she said 50 to 60,000 yes yeah right and then she's you know she clearly feels you know even though she you know she was following orders and is legally totally fine yeah. ethically she feels like she yeah can't so, ever save enough. so now she uh she's gone to great lengths to help women yeah, become fertile wasn't it yeah yeah yeah, yeah yeah and she had all those remarkable thank you <laughs> amazing scene yeah. um yeah it was that was amazing mm. but you know it's one of those things that you know part of the whole one child policy and it's it's public face is that yes everyone has one child um and you, you have one baby and that's perfect right like don't have any more babies so everyone you know i'm pretty sure i went to a rural town in China in 2012 and there was like this it was no longer in operation but it was essentially a box on the outside of the general store that was free condoms because of the yeah, one child policy right. you know so they wanted to encourage that kind of thing um so that was the utopia but of course if you think about it for any length of time that that's not going to work <laughs> that's not how people mm. operate yeah, so exactly. what happens with all of these babies that are born and or fetuses that are aborted and everything you know and then i mean there's that one image that horrific image of like a pile of 
waste essentially with mm. like four fetuses scattered around somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is just ast- astonishing. You know, it's yeah, it's not a thing that you think about and it's not a thing that the government wanted you to think about, certainly. Yeah, yeah. So what I found, what my, I think my favourite part of this was following the families that were split up and so the identical twin is in America. And oh, one that was my least favourite bit. Really? Mm. Oh, man, I was a mess. Cindy's <laughs> 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 going this, oh, please tell me there's a happy ending here, please. But I, yeah, I do, I do think that the the um, the guy in Utah got a bit too much airtime. Yeah. Oh, he did, didn't he? Yeah. I, yes. I thought the artist um, Wang Peng, was that his mm. name? Yeah. He was fascinating. Yeah. So yeah. he'd kind of gone around and collected all of the evidence that these fetuses exist and that they're, you know, that they were present, that they weren't, it wasn't just this thing, this thing that ultimately worked. And he was fascinating. And he, of course, is. I missed it, but I assume he's been banished from China now for mm. criticising the government, which yeah. so many artists are. He was living in Hong Kong um, yeah. and that he was fascinating. When it got to the end and we kind of looked at this, the identical twin story, it, it felt like it was a fo- kind of focusing on slightly the wrong thing. I did mm. feel like like it was great that she went from her family out to like more examples and mm. made it personal and then political. Like that was great. Yeah, it did feel a little messy. Right. Though, yeah, just we, as a documentary, and maybe because it's to- it was short, like, and it might, yeah, you know, I wanted these stories to be finished. In a yeah, sense. I did like your suggestion in the intro of mm. being a series or requiring a series to properly get into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just so, so fascinating. Yeah, definitely, and such an interesting approach. And yeah, as <laughs> we've sort of um, covered, it is quite a multifaceted approach. So we get all of her family stories, but then, as you say, mm. we also have. You know, an artist, we have journal- the journalist who sort of broke um, a major story and is living in self-exile in Hong Kong. Um, so you do, yeah, within that parameter, you, she comes at it from a variety of interesting angles. Mm. Um, but I just, yeah, I just reckon it's it's a really interesting approach for a documentary, this, this yeah, this personal yeah. political thing. I did think, it, like, part of it that was fascinating and scary and so so scary is that now that the one child policy has ended Mm. china is already starting to erase it and she did i feel like she could have hammered that home a bit more it did come in at the very end like the last five minutes like all of the graffiti that you or not graffiti but you know like propaganda written on walls that used to remind people about the benefits of the one child policy have now all been written over with things saying you know, we're open, like we love people, we love children, yeah, we love, you know. Yeah, two yeah. is best, one for... Uh, you know, yeah. and, the, and the, it's, it, you know, they are... China may very well begin to deny that it ever yeah. happened mm. and because then they won't have to take responsibility for the problems that it caused, you know, like so many things in China's history and that is so terrifying, isn't it? Like mm. if you, if you know, the next generation in China maybe won't even have any access to that history it already seems kind of crazy it mm. happened yeah. yeah isn't yeah. it isn't that amazing and it's just it is amazing how she shows these sort of um you know traditional cultural shows that come to particularly the small villages and the whole village sort of comes out to see it and uh it's a vehicle for propaganda so we see them uh these sort of um you know musical shows where the performers are singing and dancing and they're extolling the virtues of having one child and then at the end we see the exact same scene and now they're extolling the virtues of having two children Mm. and it's the same it's exactly the same uh exactly the same approach so that 
yeah, it was quite interesting. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I reckon this was an interesting documentary. Same. When I think about it. Yeah. yeah, I wasn't, I didn't know that it was going to be so great. Yeah. Basically, I was like, oh, you know, I was interested in it because I am interested in that history, but I was much, yeah, did a lot more than I thought it was going to do. Mm, agree. Yeah, yeah. It was better than it needed to be. Yeah, it was exactly. Really it's yeah. more than that just, you know, a Wikipedia page with some images. Oh, exactly, totally, Which many totally. documentaries can be. True. Uh, so One Child Nation is playing um, on the 3rd of August at 11.15am at the Capitol and again on Friday the 16th of August, 6.30pm at the Sofitel. Melbourne on Collins Auditorium, a.k.a. Smoker. Smoker. <laughs> Smoker. Smoker. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Very curious to see what on earth that is. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of episode 64 of Cultural Capital. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back on August 10th, coming to you from the hub of the Melbourne International Film Festival, where we'll be, we will be joined by the MIFS Critic Campus, a whole new generation of film critics and theorists, and we'll get their take on the mo- this most wonderful time of the year. So please rate, review, or subscribe. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Cultural Capital Podcast. We're on Twitter at The Cult Cap Pod. You can find me at Andy Ricky. I'm at Eloise Lowe Ross. And I'm at Anders Furs. And, and we, we think, think you're, you're great. great. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know.